host, David Little, inviting you to join us. Listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. This is the Physical Culture, Music, and Art Show. I am Vincent Mezzo, Dean of Discipline, Dean of Personal Training, and the man with the face for radio. <laughs> On today's show, we have Gabby Abularak and Jay Shaffron. Gabby is a rock blues and exquisite flamenco guitarist. He tours and does studio work. He's played and recorded with the Cro-Mags, Philip Boa's Voodoo Cult, and recorded with Everlast, Carlos Santana, John Spencer, Blues Explosion, and Korn. He's been a guitarist with over 20 years of professional experience. In both live performance, Gabby's work includes arranging, composing, and recording his own original material, as well as contributing in these capacities to other musical projects. Gabby, welcome. It's great to have you here. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. So, Gabby, to start off with, how did you get into playing guitar? I knew you as a kid. I never realized that you were a guitar player. Yes, I started playing at around three years old. Um, my father is primarily an artist, painter, but he also is a flamenco guitarist. So he, I probably wanted to emulate him, and mm-hmm. he was my first teacher. My mom is a classically trained uh, singer, ballet dancer, actress. She's also a jazz singer. So they both insisted that I start studying classical guitar very young. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, then as a boy, I got into rock. I was really heavily influenced by the guitars from the 60s, like Jimi Hendrix and uh, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. I used to, and all the other Brit rock guitar players, I used to learn their solos at a young age. And then later, when I was a young teen, I got into the punk hardcore scene, as mm-hmm. you did, and uh, went down there and uh, got into that for a while. And then in high school, I got into the jazz studies program mm-hmm. and started studying jazz. And that's that's how kind of how I developed before I started playing professionally, which was... Around my early 20s, I started playing uh, out and uh, also joined Harley's Cro-Mags very mm-hmm. young, like 22 years old, and started with that. So with that, that early childhood, uh, classical foundation really helped a lot. Absolutely, absolutely. And did your father mainly teach you to play, or did you have other teachers when you were growing up? He was my first teacher, but then I started uh, studying privately with classical guitarists. Mm-hmm. The rock stuff and it was self-taught. Uh-huh. As it, it so often is. And the blues. Absolutely. Yeah. And the blues stuff. The jazz, I did mm-hmm. study programs and things. Mm-hmm. So you went to high school of music and art I also, went to music and right? art. I got in on mm-hmm. classical guitar. There was no classical guitar program, so they moved me to uh, double bass in the orchestra. 
uh-huh. which was actually very good. I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I, I wanted to play guitar, but it ended up really helping me round out my music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did it help with, I mean, I'm sure you have good pitch, but did you find, because it's fretless, exactly. did you find that it helped with your pitch? It helped and, with the uh, pitch. It also helped me uh, understand, like, group music uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to solo guitar. Right. Um, uh, being part of an orchestra, being part of an orchestra section, the bass uh-huh. section, um, and also helped me, I can play bass, which, right. is, which is good. right. Absolutely. Yeah. And everybody needs a bass player. You know, guitar players are a dime a dozen. That's but everybody right. needs a bass player. I once did a, a small tour uh, playing bass in a rock band. So. Awesome. Yep. So currently, I know you go to Europe a lot. You go to Spain a lot mm-hmm. and you play there as well. Can you I jam out there. I have family in Spain, uh, in Madrid and in Sevilla. Um, uh, I primarily go there to be with my family, but yes, I, I've jammed at the flamenco bars in Sevilla uh-huh. uh, with my dad, actually, which was a lot of fun. Oh, awesome. And I'm looking forward to, when I have some free time, uh, doing a, joining a flamenco workshop to advance my, advance my playing. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. How did you find, you know, you've done a lot of different styles of guitar. How do you find that they're similar or different or they, and does one inform how you play another? Yeah, I would say that some of them are related, some of them aren't, but they all help each other. Uh, flamenco is an impro- is, can be an improvised art form as jazz, blues, sometimes rock is. Classical gives you foundation to play any style. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, the jazz helps a lot with the improvisation, uh, especially with the theory. Uh, so they all help each other out mm-hmm. in their own way. Uh, but to be able to really authentically play a specific genre is its own thing. It takes time to really an experience playing it, I think, to not just sound like a guitar player that plays everything but the same way. Right. Right, so you have to find the the soul or the Always. voice of that particular right, uh, like, style. Right, like with mm-hmm. flamenco, my favorite is to play what they call flamenco puro, which is the traditional style, which is different than the modern flamenco, which is also its its own culture now, and it does sound quite different than the flamenco from the 60s, which is what mm-hmm. I grew up listening to because that's what my father was into. Uh-huh. And that still forms like the foundation of the classic flamenco. Mm-hmm. Guitarists like Sabicas and the Nino Ricardo, people mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And of course, Paco de Lucia, but he also bridged and went into, uh, in the 70s, playing sambas and rumbas and things like that. Mm-hmm. That And also even commercial stuff and tied it all together, which I think helped develop what it is today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's the uh, first piece you're going to, uh, you'd like to play for us? This is called, uh, this is a Zambra, which is a, a, each flamenco style has its own thing. The Zambra Mora, uh, originally composed by the great guitarist Abicas, uh, and then played by other guitarists. This version is more of a, by the guitarist Paco Pena. Uh-huh. But I'll give it a go here, all right? Awesome. Thank you. 
Well, Gabby, thank you very much. That was wonderful. Thank you very much. You can really hear the Moorish influence in in that Sambra piece. Mora. And exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Moorish so, dance. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm sitting here watching you play, and I'm looking at that guitar, and I'm like, oh, wow, that guitar doesn't really look like much, right? We don't even have a name on the headstock there. So can you tell us a little about it? Because it's got uh, a wonderful sound. This guitar is a concert guitar. I did a lot of research. Uh, it's uh, Reyes, uh, which is made in the city of Cordoba. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the big names in flamenco guitars. The wait time is usually five years. The wait time for this is usually about five years to... Mm-hmm. Um, Along with the famous Ramirez guitars uh, and Conde Hermanos, it's one of the big names. And what happened was I was in Cordoba with my family, and I knew where the workshop was, which uh-huh. is the small little plaza of the ponies, Plaza de Potros. Uh, and so I went walking with one of my cousins into the work- small workshop. Uh-huh. Now, the original Manuel Reyes, his son now works the shop. Uh, and turns out the same high quality. And I went in, and I just he didn't he looked at me and his American guy. I'm like, no, my cousins were like, no, he can play, he can play. And I was like, come on, let me play your best guitar, right? Uh-huh. And he was like, no, you, all right, fine. But he was like standing over me, making sure. Mm-hmm. And when I started playing, he was like in Spanish, how can he, you know, how does he know these old songs? And I was like, tell him, you know, I I love the music, I, I studied it. And then I was like. Uh, can I have this? And he was like, no, it's for someone else. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I left. And then like a couple of days later, he called up my cousin and uh, said that if he wants, he can have it. Uh, so I went back a year later and bought it. Awesome. And uh, yeah, so it's it has its own voice. Uh, each guitar is different. Acoustic guitars are handmade, so they all have their own little qualities. Mm-hmm. But this has the classic qualities of it as a guitar, which I wanted, which has a really deep resonant bass. Mm-hmm. and really kind of crisp uh, highs. Uh, uh-huh, yeah. So it's, uh, and you can drive it really loud if you want, but you can also bring it down very quiet and mm-hmm. it always kind of stays with the same sound consistency. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely something about flamenco is that dynamic aspect totally. to it. Yeah, totally. and we could really hear it in that piece yeah. also. That's great that you noticed mm-hmm. this guitar because mm-hmm. it doesn't look, you know, it's, it's, I you know, never it's, know. it's unassuming, right? You never yeah, know. It's got its superhero alter ego. Well, inside, it, inside you, you will see, uh-huh. you know, oh, the right. label. That's where his label is. Absolutely. Uh, but it is a humble guitar, but has a has a big sound. Absolutely. So, are you? Can you plug a couple of your upcoming gigs? Are you going to be touring in Europe? Are you doing anything in we, the city lately? I'm primarily working right now with Harley Flanagan Chrome Eggs uh, on a new record. In uh-huh. fact, after this, I'm going to go home and then head out to the studio in New Jersey to do some tracking with him. Uh, it's coming along nice, uh, and we should have a single out. I hope by. Uh, early May, awesome songs. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of with that, and I'm doing just uh, freelance flamenco stuff as well as working on my own compositions. Um, I also have a, a project I'm working on with an artist, Stefano Lossi, where I'm playing. Uh, I'm tuning the guitar in gr- ancient Greek modes, oh, and okay. he has poetry mm-hmm. that he wrote all in Latin. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so we're kind of collaborating on that. 
the name of the project is Dea Velata, which means the Veiled Goddess. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on. I would say right now it's primarily uh, getting this record done with Harley. And we have shows in June. We're playing uh, L.A. opening for the Misfits. Uh-huh. Uh, we opened for them last year at the Prudential Center in uh, in Jersey. Uh, and we have a couple other shows. And then in this autumn, we're going to be doing a European tour, mm-hmm. which would be nice because mm-hmm. I haven't been there since the end of, of 2017. Good. I mean, on tour. Good. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned the Misfits. And back when Danzig was in the band, you know, they had this idea they wanted to look like superheroes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they would actually lift weights. And that oh, yeah. was very different than what, you know, most of the rock people and, you know, the germs and the Dickies and all of these other bands, you know, even from that time, not the old rock stars like the Stones and stuff, but even the bands at that time were a totally different thing. How did you get into fitness? Because you clearly take care of yourself. Yes. So what, how did that come about? Uh, I was always athletic as a boy. I played Little League baseball and Little League football, tackle football. Did you do Shelly's All-Stars or what did yeah, you do? Yeah, I just like that. But I also, I also played in like local Little League and I went to uh, uh, baseball camps. Uh-huh. Uh, then as a teen, I got into some more stupid things and nothing really serious, but, uh, there came a time like in my late teens where I was like, you know, I really, or I was not really late teens, mid teens where I was like, I really want to start getting in shape again. So I started weight training and, and, and that thing, which I've stuck with me my whole life, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as everything else that you can do at a gym, like cardio, all the stretching and stuff. I, yoga was something that I learned at a young age because my father was always practicing yoga. Oh, wonderful. So I used to see him as mm-hmm. a boy uh, standing upside down and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So he taught me some basic asanas, and that also stuck with me. Uh, so, yeah, but I've been, I've been working out nonstop, like, since I was a teenager. It's awesome. You know, we grew up in the same building, and I, you know, I noticed that I came to fitness through a very different route. So I, you know, was doing theater, and then I was doing dance, and then I got into acrobatics, and that brought wow. me into fitness in a very roundabout way. Mm-hmm. But I noticed that, you know, Dash Mihawk and you and Mark Vincent and this younger generation, a little younger than me, not that much younger, but you guys all seem to embrace this fitness thing, whereas the kids who are my age and a little older sort of didn't. Do Interesting. You, do you have any idea what, what might have been the difference there? You know, I really don't know. Uh, Mark or Vin Diesel, I mean, I was really close with him. He's, mm-hmm. he's my age, uh, and he was working out. I mean, we he was an influence on me, actually, with the weight training. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, But Miles Evans is your age, and he was old, right. and he got He also... You know, he actually helped me get my first weight set that I had at my house. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. And he taught me mm-hmm. some basic exercises. Uh-huh. Right? So uh, there, I'm just saying, it, I, I see what you're you're saying. There were kids of my age group that were not into working didn't out get into, so much. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a thing, you know, it's a, a choice you make and you fall in love. Mm-hmm. So you get the bug, you fall in love with, with working out and how it makes you feel. Right, right. You know? How do you find that your, when... Do you find you write when you're working out? 
Does it open up your mind? What what sort of connection do you find between your your music and your physicality? Well, that's interesting. Like at the gym, I'll listen to tracks that I recorded while I'm working out and just come up with ideas. Especially during cardio, I'll, I'll uh-huh. be you know using that to kind of multitask in that way, but also to zone in on stuff. So that's usually what I do. I usually work out uh, around late morning, uh, early afternoon, around that mm-hmm. time, before I really dive into a lot of practicing or working. But in the morning, sometimes I'll do creative stuff because it's it's an interesting zone you're in when you first wake up where you're not quite conscious and some mm-hmm. ideas can kind of flow in. Absolutely. You know? uh, the working out, though, like also helps because it gets my head like in a certain place. So when I'm done with that, I feel ready to do to focus on on music mm-hmm. so they work together mm-hmm. in that way and they've always been important in my life so it forms like one of the things along with like i guess a what i would say a meditation practice mm-hmm. that i do every day mm-hmm. those three things really help keep me moving absolutely they help each other you know right they feed off each other exactly yeah if you take mm-hmm. one out i start i start kind of stumbling like if you take out it's sometimes when you're touring a lot it's hard to work out Mm-hmm. So I bring exercise bands on the van and we all you mm-hmm. know, use them. And you can do stuff if you have time in the hotel room. Maybe you can get some push-ups and sit-ups and stretching mm-hmm. and maybe some yoga in. But sometimes it's, the rooms are so small, it's hard to even do that. Right. So right. that sometimes messes me up I'm mm-hmm. being on tour, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Sometimes- and it's hard to keep your head right when you're on tour. And you, you need, otherwise you end up in the bar or something like That's that. That's true, too. Of, yeah. That's true, too. And then you mm-hmm. wake up feeling crappy and, and mm-hmm. so on. So you are listening to the Physical Culture Music and Art Show, streaming live on Radio Free Brooklyn. Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 organization. They do a lot of work with the community, and it's radio about discovery. You're listening to Physical Culture Music and Art now, but there are a myriad of shows here at www.radiofreebrooklyn.com. So please check it out and listen to our live stream. The Physical Culture Music and Art Show has been underwritten in part by the Swedish Institute, which has been in continuous operation in New York for over 100 years. They've added quality healthcare programs, including personal training, nursing, and medical assisting to their long-standing massage therapy foundation. The school provides hands-on professional approach to education to get you into the workplace. You can go to www.swedishinstitute.edu or call them at 212-924-5900, extension 199, for more information. That's 212-924-5900, extension 199. We are here today with Gabby Abularak, flamenco guitar player, rock guitar player, guitar player extraordinaire, and he's been sharing some of his thoughts and his music with us. Uh, do you have another song that you'd like to play for us, Gabby? Sure. Yes. Great. And then I have a uh, another question I want to ask you in terms of the various types of media that are available for music. So when we come back, we'll do this song first. But then I want to find out what are how are you guys going to release? Don't answer me yet. The Chromags record when it comes out. Okay. Gabby Abularak.
Right, Gabby Abularak. What was that one called? That's a Faruka. Uh-huh. That seemed to almost have more Western kind of modern influences in it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. One part. The... Mm -hmm. uh, which, I mean, maybe, you know, almost like slightly tango in its own way. But uh, it's actually a traditional flamenco form. So uh -huh. Some of them do have Western influences. Some of the Absolutely. rhythms have uh, quite a few of them, like a guajiras and stuff like that. It's uh, related to Cuban rhythm, I, mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. Right. So with the, you know, vinyl, streaming, Spotify, all these different options now for releasing music, what are you guys going to do with the Chromags record this time? You know, I honestly can't safely answer that without checking uh -huh. <laughs> Com Commander Harley Flanagan first. Oh, okay. I don't okay. want to say anything that, you know, uh -huh. I'm going to get uh, in hot right, water. Right, get in trouble for. <laughs> well, it's That's certainly an interesting and, and question. It know? is. I mean, I'm assuming that uh, uh, he's going, that they're going to tackle it on all avenues and probably even have some down the road some 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 vinyl stuff but uh i'm sure it'll it'll be hitting on the the digital front mostly like right, like it is right. today right know? i mean that's even with you know radio free brooklyn we can get you know all through europe and california and everywhere because it's not terrestrial radio it's the internet he will i mean mm -hmm. we're definitely going to have hard copy cds with mm -hmm. art, with artwork and all right that, that that's right. what we did the last mm -hmm. time because we released an ep uh in 2017 and we had hard copy of that so that's something obviously you can order or whatever but uh i've learned that the digital download front is is the best way like i download the music that i want to listen to right. i don't buy hard copies right. anymore it's convenient absolutely yeah so can you give us your website and where people can find you for projects to hear you play etc sure um uh i am gabby abularach on facebook i also am uh GabbyAbularach.com. That's G-A-B-B-Y-A-B-U-L-A-R-H-R-A-C-H.com. And then also GabrielaBularach, which is G-A-B-R-I-E-L-A-B-U-L-A-R-A-C-H.com. So those are the three primary places. Awesome. Thank you very much, Gabby. It's been great seeing you again. We'll have to catch up some more. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on the show again next sounds, season. That sounds, was often awesome. Great. Thank you very much. Great. Jay Shaffron. Jay is in a multidisciplinary role that encompasses facility design, project management, budgeting, programming, and business development for fitness, health, and amenities spaces. Mm -hmm. He's currently the lead program designer at Urban mm -hmm. Playground, which is an amenity management and consultancy firm located in the heart of New York City. Welcome, Jay. Good morning, Vincent. It's great to see you. It's good to see you. So, Jay, you've been in fitness for a long time. Yeah, way too long. Way too long. I know. It often feels that way, right? So, 
how did you first get involved in this? Because this wasn't wasn't your degree, right? This wasn't like your first choice. No, I, I, you sort of fall into it. And, it, it, and mostly I'm a lazy person. So <laughs> I um, joined a health club in college. Uh, after college, I took some hours at the same club uh, just so I wouldn't have to pay membership. Mm-hmm. And then because of the hours I had, uh, they made me a manager. And now I sort of fell into a career. Uh-huh. So that was it. But uh-huh. um, What was that first job? What club was that? It was New was York that? Health and Racquet Club. It was a floor uh-huh. trainer at New York Health and Racquet Club on 50th Street. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, and it's just sort of, again, there were two of us in the morning. They made one of us manager, and that was it. <laughs> and you were on time, so you got the manager. I gig. was the guy. Right. So you worked for a while at Sports Training Institute also. And now... Sports Training Institute keeps on popping up in the marketing and management books that, you know, they were the first to bring high quality personal training to the market and do this blend of personal training and physical therapy. So how did you get involved with that? What was that experience like? So just after a couple of years as, um, at Health and Racket, I, uh, I had the opportunity to move over to sports training. A friend of mine had gone over, um, I went and interviewed. It was in the early, relatively early days of it, but it had been around for a few years. Uh, and it was a private uh, training center. It, it was high-end individuals coming in. Everybody had a half-hour appointment. It was set up that way. Um, mm-hmm. And again, it's sort of in a similar fa- fashion there. I eventually became a manager there or a, a floor head trainer mm-hmm. at some point. Um, and, and largely just because of... Uh, my training success. It was, mm-hmm. I happened to be a popular trainer and I'm not sure why, but, <laughs> uh, it, but it was a, it was a fun place. It was an interesting environment. It, again, it was integrated with physical therapy. It was uh, unusual at its time and, um, and, and was fun. Mm-hmm. How in terms of what you see in fitness now, how would you say that a uh, sports training Institute influenced what came after uh, do you still see things there? Have we totally moved away from that? Or is there still a core of what they were doing? So I think there's less of a core. I mean, I think personal training is probably has the same um, reason for existence. I think it's less about uh, success and gaining success as it is to have a a paid conscience. You know, people mm-hmm. just having an appointment makes people go work out. And, and so I think that's why personal training is actually succeeding now. I mean, when we started at, and, and you know my history in terms of other businesses, mm-hmm. we started other businesses with the idea that we would do enough service that we didn't have to have personal training. And then we quickly found out that people just wanted personal training again, just mm-hmm. so they had that appointment and, and, and no level of service would change that. So it was interesting. Mm-hmm. How did you end up making the transition from Sports Training Institute to doing what I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, became your primary influence, influence, excuse me, your primary work, which was corporate fitness and corporate management? So after a time at Sports Training, um, I had actually written a book while I was at Sports Training with one of my clients who was editor at the time, editor of the Playboy Guides. Uh, we wrote a, a book about fitness centers, uh, and um, it was. Uh, and was it, it a Playboy guide to fitness centers, or no? Was it a no, it was an actual thing? book, uh-huh. Random House. It mm-hmm. was. It was. 
it, it never got much uh, traction, but it was it was fun to do and it was interesting. And um, again, I'm working with other clients. I thought about getting into advertising, and uh, as it turned out, and so I left for a while. I was going to move into advertising, and then got the opportunity through an old coworker from sports training to work at a corporate fitness facility down in the wall street area. And that's, uh, and that sort of triggered the next phase and, and yeah, moved into corporate fitness and, and, and succeeded at that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. How, what, what did you study in college before you went into, uh, personal training? So English literature and biology, which is uh-huh. oddly the same two subjects. My wife had degrees in, in uh-huh. his bachelor's. Yeah. Uh-huh. So how did you find, I mean, obviously the biology makes a lot of sense. You're going to pick up the Krebs cycle and energy systems and anatomy and stuff. But it seems like also English lit may have helped a lot. So it did. Again, moving into the writing, moving and and looking at advertising, that's what I wanted to be at the Mm -hmm. time, a copywriter. And it was just, you know, again, for me, I'm a, I'm a lazy. I didn't have a, a direction. I just sort of mm-hmm. followed opportunities that came along and, and moved along with them. I mean, I think the writing has certainly helped it. You know, my ability to communicate through email. I'm not, I'm not great on the phone, but I love doing email. And mm-hmm. so uh, mm-hmm. that's always, that's always helped out, been good at doing proposals. And so we've gotten a fair amount of business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so important to be able to write a, a proposal that really is like writing copy that draws people in. Right. Now, everything is about telling a story and, and even more important now, especially in, in the area of design, it's all about sending a message, telling a story and imparting, imparting feelings, you know, mm-hmm. invoking right. emotions, that emotional connection. Exactly. So that, what is Urban Playground doing? What what sort of things are you doing? How do you involve that emotional connection in the projects you're working on now? So uh, just in, in terms of where all fitness is going, I think, and then sort of across the board, um, all fitness is moving in the direction. So it used to be quick, pretty easy. People would go to a fitness center to get in shape. And the the simple question was, you know, do you want to look better or feel better? Mm-hmm. And and that's not it. It's moving more towards experiential fitness, I think. I mean, I think everything is about, and, and again, you've had experience with kettlebells and, and sort of that was the beginning of part of the movement. Spinning was certainly part of that. Mm-hmm. Every and, mm-hmm. and now in terms of the, all the studio approach across the board, mm-hmm. that's the direction people are moving. It's, it's about the workout itself. Soul Cycle is successful because of that. You're seeing... You know, the various studios, boot camps and mm-hmm. yoga and Pilates re- coming back. And, and again, it's more about having fun and doing this in terms right. of the experience. the experience or almost the entertainment value of it as well as the, you know, fitness health value. Right. So, so for us, it's le- so it's less now about science. It's not about getting fitness center design right. It's mm-hmm. about creating differences. You don't want to be... You don't want to get the right number. It's not about the right number of showers, the right number of lockers, mm-hmm. the right coefficient of friction on the floor because in, in the wet area. And it's mm-hmm. not the lighting levels. It is about creating drama, creating an effect, understanding mm-hmm. what it's going to be like when somebody walks into the space and how that may affect um, whether somebody buys an apartment in the building or leases there or whether they 
join a company because they think it's a cool place to work. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not just about fitness anymore either. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I'm, and, and I'm, I'm stepping on myself here. Urban Playground mm-hmm. is a company that designs spaces and amenity built and, and sort of residential properties, hotels, and in corporate projects. So we do everything. And, and again, we go beyond um, the, uh, the design of the fitness center per se, but the entire experience. So for us, it's now employee experience is the, mm-hmm. is the terminology within a corporate setting. How, so when you go into a space, whether it's a building or whether it's a company, you have to get a real sense of the corporate culture and then try and or correct me if I'm wrong, and then try and reflect that in the environment you're creating in the fitness center. So it's a couple of things. So if it's a corporation, you want to know what the goals are. I mean, and it, frequently it's you, know, you talk to them and you'll say, you know, what are your goals? Is it reward for current employees? Is it to recruit? Is it to save money on the on the health side because you're you're self insured? And they'll say it's all things, but inevitably it comes down to recruiting. And so, uh-huh. you know, it's, and then it, what, what type of people are you trying to recruit? Who's the typical employee? Who, who would you look for? And, and then you try to figure out what they want in the workplace. Mm-hmm. You know? How is that similar to, and how is that different from residential projects? How do you go in? Do you work with the architects? Do you work with the, you know, money people? So we work with the leasing agent. I mean, we frequently are brought in by the leasing agents or the developers. And uh, it's the same thing. You, you want the building to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it's interesting, particularly in New York, where you have the opportunity to create something unique. So I know we're working on a residential building now that we're designing as the dog-friendliest building in New York. Uh-huh. And, and it's just, it's going to be a differentiator. It's going to change Who's going to come to our building? When you come to the building, you're going to be asked to bring your dog with you uh-huh. so they can experience the, the thing. I mean, we, at one point we were looking at a dog elevator in this building. It's not built yet, but it's mm-hmm. going up on the west side or they're about to break ground on the west side. And um, it's a, I mean, it's it's a fun project and it's, it's interesting. And you try to figure out, again, who you're trying to attract what it's going to be like to live there mm-hmm. and, and sort of what the messaging is right from the get-go, from the design side. Mm-hmm. And then, again, we operate these amenities in a lot of cases also, so it's it's a matter of continuing that messaging throughout and then adjusting as time moves forward. Mm-hmm. From a a more business perspective, what project, what element within a project do you think has been the most successful in creating this connection or creating this environment in the projects that you've worked on recently? So in terms of individual projects, it, I mean, I, I think, I don't know. I think it's attention to details. It's, it's, it's again, creating drama. When you look at the site, you're not trying to create an overall thing, but you look for mm-hmm. elements. You look for places where you're, you're going to invest a little more money to say, you know, what, you know, at Goldman, back in the day, it was a matter of putting a twinkle ceiling in the uh, spinning room, uh-huh. and that was, and we, and doing specialty lighting in the steam room, and you know, just create spaces where somebody can do something. As as we move ahead now, because of social media, now we talk about creating Instagrammable moments as we mm-hmm. as we design every mm-hmm. space. You know, where are people in this building on this rooftop going to stop and take pictures mm-hmm. and what do we do right there and how do we create that and mm-hmm. 
And it, it's create and same thing programmatically. You're trying to figure out what you can put in the center that's unusual that, that they're mm-hmm. not going to see everywhere else, and and they want to share. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about personal training before. What other sort of programming are you incorporating now into the residential buildings? Are you doing small group? Are you putting in spinning studio, spinning studios, climbing walls? What sort of things are are you looking at now? So we're doing spinning studios. We're doing a lot with light these days. So we're mm-hmm. doing color-changing meditation rooms or yoga rooms and, mm-hmm. and doing the same thing within lounges. We have a, a vendor that we work with who is able to adjust moods within lounges as sort of a combination of doing a setting on light and music and mm-hmm. and just, okay, if you're in here to – it's a work day, it's this level of lighting, this level of this. If mm-hmm. you're working – if you're and because, again, people work from home – Frequently right, now, as we right. design everything, there's a blurring. You have for every corporate space, you have to put in living room types of spaces. For every residential space, you have to understand how a good percentage of the residents they're going to be working during the day, mm-hmm. and then how that lounge gets used at night. You're not putting in TVs, and you know people don't need big TVs. They have big TVs in mm-hmm. in their homes in their now, apartments. and so it's a matter of, of figuring out how those spaces are going to function at night, and you know who's going to go in there, and, and what can you do, and you know, can give them a reason to go there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The what's your? I mean, you mentioned the lighting, the steam room, and stuff. What's your favorite element that you've incorporated personally? Your favorite element you've incorporated into a space lately? So lately, I mean, again, I think that working on this project, the dog stuff is sort of fun. Uh huh. I mean, as as you just sort of, we get to think about a number of things, and again, we're we're. Urban playground is, is unusual in that it's not just about the physical plant for us. We're we're thinking about technology a lot now. We have a mm-hmm. a subgroup called Urban Labs that that has created an app for us and and done some other things. But we're looking at a little bit of light mapping, and so we're trying to for this building we, as we're as we're playing around with it. We're we're building in the capability of doing sort of projection in common areas. So. If somebody happens to be walking by with a dog, a thought bubble pops up next to them, and and the dog is thinking, "Hey, I have to go," <laughs> or or just uh-huh. like, or they're thinking, "Hmm, you know, I should bring down, I should go get a massage today," and uh, and you know, it, it triggers things. Uh huh. That's that's very like Running Man, Philip K. Dick stuff with the advertisements coming by you as you walk down the street and right. stuff. Yeah. And really being specific to that and we think situation. It, yeah. And going forward, we recognize the technologies on the AI side that everybody, mm-hmm. there's going to be the internet of things as, as talking about. And, and, you know, it will recognize individuals. It's not, I mean, as we talk about it, there's, there's a lot, been a lot of discussion about big data, but it mm-hmm. really comes down to little data. It's an understanding of what the individual is doing. That mm-hmm. People are tracked by their Fitbits mm-hmm. or their, Apple Watches, mm-hmm. the Apple Watches are doing more things. And so how are we going to integrate with, with that mm-hmm. technology going forward? How much have you incorporated the Fitbits and all of that kind of monitoring into projects? So less into projects than into um, programming. So mm-hmm. we we're, we're, we run contests based on Fitbits where mm-hmm. people track their stuff and we set up groups and you create the team and, and you do that. And, um, and, uh, Again, we're, we're recognizing where we think we know where it's going and we're, we're sort of planning for it. 
most of the equipment manufacturers aren't there yet. So mm-hmm. we're, we're, mm-hmm. we think that there's going to be opportunity to do more with that going forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. You are listening to the Physical Culture Music and Art Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. And we're going to hear a quick break from one of our entertainment sponsors. In the fitness industry, exercise offenses are considered especially heinous. In New York City, the dedicated officers or fitness police who investigate these infractions are members of an elite squad known as the Special Fitness Unit. These are their stories. Excuse me, buddy. Please put the weight down and step away from the squat rack. Yeah, step away from the squat rack, As I'm sure you're aware, sir, arm curling in the squat rack is not an appropriate use of that piece of equipment. Yeah, it's not appropriate. functional training, stupid little punk ass bitch. I'm gonna goddamn it. You better get out of here. You got that right, Mikey. And we are back with Jay Shaffron from Urban Playground. This is the Physical Culture Music and Art Show, streaming live on Radio Free Brooklyn from beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn, 100 Bogart Street. So, Jay, what what year about did you actually get started in the fitness industry? Oh, my God. So it's it's probably around 1980. Uh-huh. So you've been at this a long time. What, you know, what were the clothes? What was the equipment? What was the fitness industry like in the 80s from your perspective? What were you seeing at New York Health and Racquet Club back then? So there was a, there was a movie around called 10 at the time and it was it, mm-hmm. it came about with Bo Derek uh-huh as being the 10 and it was it was sort of about that. It was a little bit about I mean, it feels like disco. I mean, it feels like mm-hmm. that. It was reminiscent of that. It was it was about that, a little bit about fashion, about being going to a health club as a singles bar type of thing, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it was funny at the beginning. Um, and again, you know, people, a variety of people came in. It was, but it was. Um, and again, I'm I'm describing it as the beginning of fitness. It's certainly not the beginning of the fitness, right, but right. it was it was where we were at that time, and and that's. Uh, it was a, you know, funky little group. But again, now looking back at it in time, it feels so dated in terms of what it was. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, short shorts on basketball players. <laughs> exactly. The, you know, the Bo Derek thing, what, uh, what sort of programming? Because there was Nautilus, ACSM came out with its first guidelines. Ken Cooper wrote aerobics. Uh, we had... Um, Jazzercise and aerobic dance. So all of these things all of a sudden right around the end of the 70s, early 80s sort of made the fitness industry change. What sort of equipment and stuff was happening at New York Health and Racket back then? So back then it was it was Nautilus equipment um, and some of the cool there were there was a machine called the super hip and back that you had to crank yourself into. Um, mm-hmm. There was a dual pullover that it was another sort of cage type of thing that you would get in and boat pull over with both arms and it had a pull down on it. Um, the treadmills were no TVs on treadmills back in the day. You, mm-hmm. you were in a room with, uh, some music and you were looking in a mirror. You would go on the treadmill, run for 45 minutes, staring mm-hmm. at yourself in the mirror. Mm-hmm. There's no entertainment at all. Right. Be 
right. music that you can barely hear because they couldn't hear over, over the sound over of the your own running. Feet, yeah. uh-huh. Now, you've done a lot of running. So you, how many marathons have you run? So I've only run about eight or nine. Liz oh, has only run, eight or nine? Yeah. Oh. Lizzie's run. Oh, so Liz, Liz Nepperin's my wife, who mm-hmm. is uh, also is an icon in the fitness industry. She's mm-hmm. um, she's author of co-author of Buns of Steel and Abs of Steel and Fitness for Dummies and Weight Training for Dummies and a, a number of other fitness books and has been editor for fitness magazines and so on. Um, so she's run a lot of marathons and mm-hmm. and we both did a few ultra marathon type uh-huh. of things. And those are hundred mile or yeah, fifty anything, mile or anything over a marathon. So it, mm-hmm. when it, for me it was sort of as I've done some sixty k's, you know, thirty seven mm-hmm. miles. Uh, we we did a little bit of fifty milers, a couple mm-hmm. of them. We didn't we supported people on hundred milers because mm-hmm. at the end of a hundred miler, they you, you could have somebody run with you for the last thirty miles, and so mm-hmm. we would do that with with friends of ours, but. And we never got into the really uh, into the hundred mile distances mm-hmm. or longer. Mm-hmm. Right. So compared to the Boderic ten singles bar atmosphere in the early eighties, how what are sort of the the big changes? Not just necessarily where we are now, but where do you see as sort of the big ninety degree turns or forks in the road that we've hit since then as as an industry? So it, it's it's interesting. I think it depends on what perspective we're talking about. Again, I think things are moving in the direction of of experience. It's why you're doing it. it mm-hmm. You know, the reasons for doing it are different. What you expect to get out of a class are different. I think people don't care. About, you know, we used to put a lot of mirrors in clubs because mm-hmm. people want to look at themselves all the time. And you, you, you had an understanding of how, as you were designing that you might not put the dumbbells here in front of the mirror because it might block off views. <laughs> and uh, and I think it's less of that now. It is more about doing things as a group. I think um, it, it's a little of that. And I think Peloton is changing the marketplace mm-hmm. in, in a strange way. I mean, I'm not sure. You and I have been around long enough to know things are going to trend. They're, they're going to mm-hmm. move for a while and then disappear and maybe come back or mm-hmm. maybe not. Um Peloton's about to go out with an enormous IPO mm-hmm. evaluation that's just mind-boggling in terms of where, mm-hmm. where they are, what they're selling. But they think they have a model that's that's going to be mm-hmm. successful, and, and they could be right. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. interesting. But um, so I think that that is it, that things may be moving in that direction, but I'm not confident of that yet. Mm-hmm. Again, things change, so we'll, we'll see. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. Biggest fitness fail over the last 40 years. The the trend that was really not a trend, but just a fad. And boy, I wish we hadn't done that. I, so there was, I mean, there have been a number of them. So there was the flow. I mean, I don't know if you remember the flow. The flow. It the, sounds uh, it familiar. It was so brief. It was so <laughs> short. It was a piece of equipment were essentially, think of a giant rain stick that you would hold and right, things would right. move from side to side and mm-hmm. it would be a map movement around that. And you don't see them. And they, they didn't last for long. They couldn't really make much of a go of it. Nobody mm-hmm. nobody could buy that in terms of a single type piece of equipment. That was small piece in terms of larger pieces. I mean, 
you know, stair ma- uh, stair stair climbers, the mm-hmm. the two foot. I mean, the rolling uh, the escalator gauntlet right. kind of one. That one's still yeah. that one's still around a lot, but mm-hmm. you don't see the one with the two steps and mm-hmm. that used to have inordinately high um, calorie burn rates on it mm-hmm. that, that you knew weren't real, but you know, people thought that they were getting a lot out of it and just didn't have any staying power at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. What you, you've sort of hit on this a couple times, but what do you think in about 30 seconds, what do you think is the, the thing we should be focusing on as an industry? So I think the interesting thing coming up, and again, technology has failed in fitness for year after year. I mean, there are a handful of things. Fitbit is the first thing in a long time that really, I mean, you know, it was TVs on treadmills and now Fitbit. And there's mm-hmm. not much between there that where technology has succeeded. And we've moved in the direction of kettlebells and dumbbells and, mm-hmm. and uh, boot camp and yoga. Those are the things that are hot. Technology finally may catch up and, and have a, a purpose of the Fitbit and AI and, uh, you know, gathering information and, get, and creating individualized stuff. I think that's the direction that mm-hmm. the industry needs to focus on. Mm-hmm. People like getting that information now. Right, right. They like being able to accumulate and aggregate, but also to make sense of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you may be able to get equipment at some point going forward where it recognizes your heart rate is a little too high. Lower, the treadmill itself knows to lower itself and 